the Winnipeg Jets set an NHL record they would just as soon forget about, 30 games without a win. However, their loyal fans supported them throughout the long losing streak, which ended earlier this week. Dave Jacobson reports on the Winnipeg fans who faithfully watched a team which hadn't won a game since October 17th. Minus 30 degree temperatures, minus 30 games without a win. But when the Colorado Rockies hit town, 11,500 fans turned out to support their team. The Jets, to the delight of the team's executive, have averaged around 13,000 fans per game during this dismal season. In his playing days, general manager John Ferguson became accustomed to winning with the Montreal Canadiens. But don't say anything nasty about the Jets' losing streak to his face. He's the first to stick up for them. We're a young club. Uh, we don't have a lot of NHL experience. I don't expect my young quality players to be accomplished National Leaguers after 30 games either. But on the other hand, uh, they've been in a lot of games and haven't embarrassed anybody. And when they get that real test uh, to win hockey games, I think they'll be all right. The Jets are a young team with an average age of 23, and they make a lot of mistakes on the ice, but you rarely hear a boo from their fans. We may be at the bottom of the loop this year and maybe make sure a little climb next year, but look out, buddy, we're coming four or five years down the road. We'll be there. Good for you. We've had the champagne here before. We've just started a vineyard now. Great. The grapes are coming. How do you feel about it, sir? Oh, we got a good team. It just takes a little time, that's all. Mm -hmm. And you, sir? Yeah, I think it's been good hockey this year, and... It's enjoyable, entertaining, and when it's entertaining, it's, it's good. doesn't matter whether they win or lose. On this cold winter's night in Winnipeg, with an American film crew and a writer from Sports Illustrated in attendance to cover the winless streak, the patience of the fans finally pays off. Dave Jacobson, CBC News, Winnipeg. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, hello there, everybody. Your pal Tim Hanlon is reporting for duty this week. And, uh, and of course, it is Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thank you for finding us, as always. And thank you for tolerating our gap last week. Hope you enjoyed our uh, repeat episode uh, about the uh, International Volleyball Association, a, a, a topic that continues to fascinate, as does uh, old hockey teams of the past or, or previous incarnations, I think. In this case, uh, our return to Manitoba to discuss the Winnipeg Jets with our guest this week, Jeff Kerbison, uh, who I newly discovered, although it's been out. These uh, two books have been out for some time. Shame on me for not knowing this. But again, I live in the United States and, you know, we think we know everything down here. But, you know, a lot of good stuff's happened up in Canada. And, and two awesome books, uh, I think, frankly, are uh, probably the the best uh, and, and most definitive uh, tomes devoted to both versions, shall we say. Uh, the uh, WHA version of the Winnipeg Jets, right, we know uh, in the 1970s uh, became basically the dominant and most winning or winningest franchises in WHA history, including the last ever uh, defending WHA champions from 1979, the Winnipeg Jets, the hotline uh, uh, in 78 and 77 and 76, uh, Bobby Hull and Anders Hedberg and Ulf Nielsen. That is the name of uh, the first book uh, that one should get from Jeff Kerbison. It's called The Hotline. Had the legendary trio of Hull, Hedberg, 
and Nielsen transformed hockey and led Winnipeg Jets to greatness. And that kind of documents a little bit, a whole bunch, frankly, of the WHA years. And then this transition, as you sort of got a sense from that clip from December of 1980 from the CBC News broadcast, uh, that transition to the NHL uh, after that 1979 Avco Cup winning season um, the team essentially kind of got uh, hived out, uh, was sort of broken up for parts. And and uh, as they entered the NHL, the Winnipeg Jets, the new version, if you will, at that at that time, uh, were pretty much decimated and uh, started really on the bottom. And uh, that clip comes from the time when essentially I think that franchise in its second year of NHLness uh, really bottomed out uh, a, a thirty game winless streak. Uh, and I think only won nine games that 1980-81 NHL, their second season. Uh, and that book um, that you should get uh, that describes all of that part of the Winnipeg Jets' original story is called Broken Ribs and Popcorn, how the Winnipeg Jets became the best team in the NHL's most offensive era not to win the Stanley Cup. And hint, hint, uh, after that bottoming out, things got a little better, uh, a few new draft picks and uh, a little bit of uh, scheduling magic and rivalry with the uh, Edmonton Oilers and just, uh, you know, fantastic uh, 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 fan support even through uh, the, the bad years and essentially some uh, some uh, better memories uh, during the course of uh, the later years and, of course, uh, ending uh, in heartbreak with a, uh, uh, a move, a relocation to what is now the stability <laughs> of the Arizona uh, desert and the Coyotes franchise that still remains. I, we get into all that kind of stuff. Uh, and um, it's fun. It's interesting. It's curious, all of it. Uh, uh, and then some with Jeff Kerbison, our guest this week, we're talking about, we are going to be talking about the Winnipeg Jets of the WHA and then the first foray in the NHL uh, as the Winnipeg Jets, shall we call them 2.0. And we know, of course, that the Winnipeg Jets now exist as a relocated franchise from Atlanta. And uh, we also discuss, you know, where all that history from the original version should live, does live, mutually uh, live uh, in the minds of fans and historians and all that kind of stuff. Good, good conversation. And uh, we appreciate Jeff for joining us. And let me just remind you before we get into that chat, uh, that the best way to help support this show, as always, is to uh, find our links to where uh, often these books or movies or whatever uh, our guests might be uh, peddling that week. And, and go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com and search up the individual episodes uh, where those books or movies or other things are featured. And usually you'll find convenient links to uh, to buy them. And then when you click on those links... Uh, we get uh, literally a couple of uh, nickels and dimes uh, of referral uh, goodness uh, for doing that. Uh, it's the least you can do to help support the show before we try to, you know, frisk you for a Patreon subscription or that kind of stuff, which we'll maybe get to at some point. But for now, uh, this is the only way we kind of, you know, uh, heckle you to, uh, to you know, guilt and shame you into, you know, giving us a couple of bucks by doing this. And I'll be indirectly. It's not like we're coming to your home at all. Uh, in this case, go to goodseatsstillavailable.com and search up this episode, which will be numbered or is numbered 318. You know that by now. Our uh, conversation coming up with Jeff Kerbison. And uh, you'll see convenient links to both of these books. The Hotline, 
uh, and uh, which came out, I think, in uh, when was it? I think 2016 and uh, Broken Ribs and Popcorn, which came out in 2020. You'll also find a link to um, uh, a bunch of other stuff uh, by uh, by Jeff as well, including a new book coming out soon, which we'll have hopefully another episode devoted to uh, his um, biography of the great Morris uh, Lukovich. Uh, a player uh, extraordinaire for the uh, Winnipeg Jets called the heaven and hell of playing in the NHL. And hopefully we'll get Morris and Jeff onto the show to talk about the ups and downs and uh, rebounds, shall we say, of uh, a WHA NHL uh, career and um, and what uh, that entails and has entailed uh, in life in general. So all those uh, great uh, books and uh, are available for you for purchase literally anywhere you find books, but go to our website again, goodseatsstillavailable.com, click on uh, the convenient links there and uh, do us a favor uh, by buying them that way. We appreciate that tremendously. And we of course appreciate you listening and supporting the show. Uh, and here's our, let's uh, waste uh, uh, not a moment's more time. Let's get into our conversation with Jeff. Uh, fascinating, very interesting and learned a lot about the uh, first generation, the second generation, and even some hints on the current iteration of the Winnipeg Jets. Here's our conversation we had just last week. I sure hope you enjoy it. Please, as always, do so and enjoy. Why don't you give our audience a bit of a sense of your entree into the the two versions of the original Winnipeg Jets story? Because... I think based on what I've read thus far in your two books, uh, the Jets books, um, it was kind of, uh, I, I'm guessing it was a childhood thing. No? Well, I guess there's two parts to it. One that as a kid, my parents would take my sister and me to Jets games in the WHA. And back then the Jets played a lot of international teams. So we would go and see the Czech national team and teams like that at the Winnipeg arena for like $8 or whatever it was. And, so I um, I got introduced, I guess, to the hotline in the mid-70s at a couple of those games. And then I remember going in their last year, 77, 78, uh, which was arguably arguably the best uh, WHA team in the history of the league. And the, they would just hop over the boards and people would start cheering like crazy. And so I, I was thinking as a 10-year-old kid, like, what's going like what's going on with those guys? And then I, I you know, I put it together that that they were people people were just happy to see them on the ice and and they were cheering in anticipation of the magic that was about to unfold and then um fast forward a bunch of years and when i was a business reporter at the winnipeg free press my editor asked me if i wanted to go to sweden to cover ikea coming to winnipeg and ikea coming to winnipeg had been like the great untold story for like 15 years and everybody wanted ikea to come here and I said, of course, I want to go to Sweden. So uh, when I would walk around in Elmholt, Sweden, people would ask me where I was from. And I would say Winnipeg. And they'd say, oh, yeah, Anders Hedberg. I would say, what? Yeah, Elf Nilsson. Wait, wait, hang on a second. They, like those guys haven't played hockey in Winnipeg for a million years. How, where's this coming from? They said, that's how we know Winnipeg, by the Swedes that played there. So then they would rhyme off Danny Lebroton and Willie Lindstrom and Lars Eric Schoberg and Bobby Hull, of course. And so Winnipeg was the Winnipeg Jets were the the favorite team in a lot of Sweden, along with the Toronto Maple Leafs because of Boris Salming. And so I got back from while I was there, I was reading a book called The Rebel League by Ed Willis. Yes, for, and, former guest, one of our earliest. Yep, 
former Winnipeg guy, covered the team way back when. And he had a, he had one line in there about the hotline that he said that they were the most influential line in the history of hockey on both sides of the Atlantic. And I got back from um, from my uh, my trip, and I, and I there was a guy from Great Plains Publishing in my hockey pool, and I said, you know, I just read this book on the WHA, but I'd like to read the book on the on the uh, the most influential line in the history of hockey. Who wrote the book on the hotline? And he said, it hasn't been written yet. Do you want to do it? And I said, yeah, sure. How, how do you write a book? So then I just started calling guys. And one guy would get, would say, you should talk to this guy. And he'd give me his number. And then that guy would say, talk to that guy and give me his email address. And I had no shortage of people who wanted to talk about Ulf Anders and Bobby Hull. I, get, get, before we get to the those three guys, though, and, and, and obviously Hull kind of is the beginning of all of it, literally go back, goes back to the beginning of the league itself. Can you give yep. our, our, our audience, especially those south of the border, uh, a little better of an understanding of just how big uh, an event uh, the awarding of a franchise in a serious challenger to the NHL was to the city of Winnipeg. Right, because it put him on the map, right, in many respects, as a major league, quote unquote, city in that in that regard, sure. right? Yeah, I don't think people really appreciated uh, at the time for what it really was, because if there if that didn't happen back in 1972, we wouldn't be talking about Mark Mark Shifley and Josh Morrissey in 2023. But we had Ben Hatskin, who was one of the owners in this uh, about to become a league league. And they thought, well, they need to get some marquee names and uh, to uh, to give it legitimacy. And Gordy Howe was retired. And Bobby Orr wasn't going to leave Boston, <laughs> at least not for another four years uh, or three or four years. And they thought, well, the one guy who could be pried out of, out of his situation was Bobby Hull because he and the Blackhawks have been fighting over money for, for years. Uh, and he, back then, he would just sign a series of one-year contracts. So... Uh, Haskin went after him and and uh, said that he would give him a the outrageous bonus of a million dollars. And Hull, sorry, I'm, that that's after Hull had said when he was asked what would it take, and he said a million dollars, and and Haskin agreed. And uh, so then Hull was a man of his word and said, uh, "You got yourselves a hockey player." And so he arrived in Winnipeg and to to great fanfare and, but it wasn't like. You couldn't get a ticket to the Jets back in 1972 because you could. Back in the old Winnipeg Arena, it only held ten and a half thousand, and they were getting seven, eight, nine thousand per game. And then, in and the Jets were good that first year. And um, Hull played with uh, Norm Bowden and Christian Borlo, and they each had a hundred points. And that was after Hull had to sit out for the first little while while the NHL fought in court to keep the its former players from jumping to the WHA. But then in the second year, the Jets weren't as good and they kind of fell off. And Bobby was thinking like, what have I done? Like I've left the NHL. I've left Chicago. I was making good money there. I knew that the league was going to be there. Maybe I made a mistake. And then uh, thanks to Billy Robinson and Jerry Wilson, the Jets signed Anders Hedberg, Ulf Nilsson, Kurt Ridley, uh, sorry, Kurt Larson and Lars Eric Schoberg. And that changed. So as soon as Hall skated with those with the two uh the, the two forwards Hedberg and Nilsson at the St. James Civic Center in the fall of 72 uh, sorry 74 and he said those kids came out of the corner like they were shot out of a cannon and he knew he had something there and that actually uh, marked a transformation for Bobby because he said to them 
I'll fit into what you guys do and you don't have to work around me, which was which wasn't expected. Most big league players or big time players wanted everyone to revolve around their style of play. And so Hull became, instead of being uh, the, the, the shooter on a lot of things, he became a, he became a playmaker. And cause Anders Hedberg doesn't get 50 goals every year. If, if Bobby's shooting the puck all the time. And so they became a possession line and then a possession team. So what, what the whole hotline was doing, the rest of the jets tried to do. So if they didn't have, an opportunity when they're coming in, they turn around and go back and do it again. And there was no dump and chase, which was typical of that era because you had the Broad Street Bullies, the Philadelphia Flyers in the NHL, and you had the Birmingham Bulls in the WHA and teams like that. And so none of these teams were going to be accused of of uh, of their beautiful play. And um, so the the Jets and the Montreal Canadiens were kind of defining the way hockey should be played. And in the face of a bunch of thugs and they were getting all the headlines because, oh, they made a movie out of it, right? Slap shot. And all of the, uh, all of the buffoonery got lots of attention. And, um, but the Jets and the Canadians were playing hockey the way it was supposed to be played. And so they played possession hockey. And if you didn't have the puck by the end of your shift, you were exhausted from chasing those guys. And, um, and they put the puck in the net all the time. Aside from Hull's, um, worries about uh, the uh, experiment in Winnipeg at the time. Did he have any direct uh, uh, input into uh, Messrs. Hedberg and um, and Nielsen coming to the team? And was he part of, I mean, what, was he just griping for for better players or or was it kind of, uh, how, how involved was he in these guys coming into the, te- into the team? I don't think he was that involved with them coming over. That was more like Jerry Wilson was the main guy for that because Jerry, Dr. Jerry Wilson was working in Stockholm and he was there doing some research. And one of his assistants was a, a young student named Anders Hedberg. And so they got, he got, of course he got to know him and found out what he was doing. And, and, uh, and Billy Robinson had the director of scouting, I think it was his title or player development for the jets had said to Wilson before he left, he said, listen, the Maple Leafs, signed Boreas Alming and Inga Hammers from last year. If there's more of these guys over there, let me know. And so Wilson went to see a game with that. And I think the first game was Hedberg was playing on a team, might've been the Swedish national team against the Soviet national team. And he went behind his net with the puck and Valerie Harlamov, who was generally regarded as the fastest skater in the world, came in down one side to chase after him. And he, and he, uh, Hedberg went out the other side and not only by the time he, by the time Hedberg got to center ice, not only had he not given up any ground to Harlamov while carrying the puck, but he had gained on him. He'd, he'd widened the gap. So Wilson called back to Winnipeg and said, yeah, there's these two guys here. And um, he had talked to Anders and Anders said, well, if you want another guy, you could, there's this guy who, who plays on another um, Swedish uh, elite team, Ulf Nilsson. And then they said, well, there's this other guy, Lars Eric Schoberg, who was the captain of the Swedish national team. And they were all they were all the property of other NHL teams, but the rules were a little more loosey-goosey back then. And they decided they would all come to Winnipeg because they could they could make a difference as a as a group more so than if they went their own separate ways. But Hull definitely was the, I guess he would de facto GM is probably not a bad title for the role he played. 
and especially after Olfen Anders arrived in Winnipeg, because they would say, uh, Olfen Anders would get asked about and Schoberg, are there any other guys over there? And they would say, yes, well, there's there's um, Willie Lindstrom, for example, and uh, and Tommy Bergman, who joined the team in seven, later on in 74. And uh, so I think generally as the years went on, and Hull ultimately became an owner, one of the owners of the team, but he was the de facto GM because he needed to keep the the face of the franchise, the face of the league, actually. He needed to keep him happy. And you wanted to surround him with guys who would help showcase his talents. Yeah, it's amazing because they were also, I guess, regarded as, uh, I don't know if they started it, but they were certainly probably the two brightest lights in what became a fairly um, uh, uh, open pipeline of European talent that that came into the, into the WHA, I think even more with more velocity even than than what the NHL was putting out on the ice at that point. Oh, there's no question about that. There, like, there were, there was a, a period there in the mid '70s when there were more Swedes on the, uh, there were more members of the Swedish national team on the Winnipeg Jets than there were on the Swedish national team. So there was, um, uh, there was Tommy Bergman and Mats Lind and Kurt Larson and Dan LeBroden and Hedberg and Nilsson. And not not to mention the fact that we had Veli Pekka and Hexu Aranta, who were the two the two highest profile players on the Finnish national team. So uh, I, I think there are more, also more European players on the Jets than there were in the rest of North America combined. So uh, to say that the Jets were trailblazers, they, they, yeah, they didn't get in their first. Like Tommy Bergman was the first one to come to Detroit in 1972. He went on his own. And but he wasn't seen as a Swede so much because there were uh, Bergman wasn't uh, uh, a noticeably like there are other Bergmans in the NHL and so it wasn't like Nielsen and so he he was he didn't attract as much attention and in fact in one of his first games he uh, he got in a fight with um, with Dave Schultz Dave the Hammer Schultz and apparently fought him to a draw and he got back to the bench and people said to him what the hell are you doing you know who that is and he goes no. Well, that's Dave the Hammer Schultz. He leads the league in penalty minutes, and he's the biggest fighter in the league. And Bergman said, "Well, he shouldn't. He shouldn't cross check be in the crease." So no. So which should have which should have helped dispel the whole chicken shit Swede myth that was going around back then. But um, uh, no. So, so the, yeah, the Jets were definitely on the cutting edge there, and um, and there were more Swedes to come, right? Like uh, like of course, Kent Nilsson came to the Jets back in uh, in, uh, in 1977. It's astonishing to me because I, you know, I know the the first two years of the Jets' existence, uh, Hall was the coach as well as uh, the star player and star attraction. They they lost the Avco uh, Cup final that first season, and 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 you know probably to the um, uh, to the uh, belief of the fans and and to the WHA in general that stand to reason that their biggest star. Uh, was part of that sort of mix, but slowly, you know, kind of uh, by, you know, if th- two seasons later by 74, 75, they, you know, they were kind of middling, I guess was a good way to put it. And they burned through three coaches, including Hull himself. Um, describe to me just about when uh, these two guys came into the mix. Was it during 74, 75 season? Uh, because obviously what transpired the the following season was just it, almost a worst to first kind of situation, not truly worst, but, but pretty darn close. Well, you mean with Hedberg and Nilsson in 74, 75? Correct. Well, the funny thing about that was that like the Jets were 
got a lot of attention because they had all these Swedes and a lot of, uh, and, and they weren't initially welcomed with open, open arms by their teammates because, and goalie Joe Daly will tell you that he looked at it as, well, four of my friends are losing their jobs here. And so why do we want these Swedish guys here? And then when, once they saw what they could do and they learned what kind of players they were, then they were more readily accepted. But like Hull sat out a game at one point because of the abuse that they were taking in. And uh, Ulf played most of his his career in Winnipeg with a black eye because uh, as a centerman, he was trying to draw four checker or checkers to him. And so he would dish the puck off to Anders or Bobby and and take a hit. And uh, and he also got a lot of hits. Like Nielsen didn't get hit a lot when he was facing other players. He got hit a lot when they could see his numbers. So he was uh, he was pretty beaten up. But um, um, but that year though the Jets didn't make the playoffs, so they had all this great firepower, but they needed to learn how to transform the team, and so it wasn't until the following season when everybody was on this was singing from the same same songbook, and the Jets were a truly a possession team, a possession first, and everyone else was chasing. Did, did the and, fans kind of did the fans kind of know what they were getting, and and I'm guessing Hull did too, or or did it take a little time for them to kind of razzle dazzle people and kind of show a little uh, show a little legs, so to speak, before they kind of re- recognize what they what they did have? Well, I think that Winnipeggers got spoiled because we had this. Just imagine in in the third year of our league, third year of our team here, we had the arguably the best player in the world. Bobby Hull. And we had the fastest skater in the world, Anders Hedberg. And we had the best playmaker in the world, both Nilsson. All of them on one line. All of them not in the NHL. Like, that's impossible. There's no way that that could, like, you couldn't have imagined a situation where that could have happened. So in our third year, we've got this awesome team and we've got these guys who are and and it helped that uh Anders and Ulf and 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 Shu were all were great guys and lots of people have come up to me and said told me stories about when they were driving after a snowstorm and and they couldn't their car got stuck and a car, a car pulled up behind them and Anders Hedberg and Lars Eric Schoberg shoveled them out of a out of a ditch or something like that so there's so they were they were just they were great guys and um and the other Swedes came over were that way too. And they were all, they're all tough as nails and they all wanted to dispel the notion that, that the Swedes weren't tough. And in, in fact, I once had a conversation with the, uh, with the Owen Thordeson, who was the Winnipeg Tribune uh, shooter back in the seventies. And he was later on the photo editor at the Winnipeg free press. And he told me that he said, Ulf Nilsson was the toughest guy I ever saw play. And I said, what are you talking about? Like, Ulf didn't, he didn't fight. He wasn't, he didn't throw any hits. He said, no, 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 that's not tough. Tough is, is taking the garbage that other teams throw at you and not changing the way you play. So guys could run it at, at Nilsson. They could cross check and they could slash him, and it, it didn't change a thing. He still kept feeding the puck to, to um, Anders and Bobby and he, he kept taking the hits. And, and Yon told me that one time he saw Ulf, taking his jersey off after a playoff game and he was wearing the full goalie armbands the goalies wear and he was still black and blue because the amount of stick work that he got was was off the charts and and Tommy Bergman said 
that a lot of this, a lot of the abuse that and that Ulf took back in those days, you'd get suspended for today. It, did, but it did take a. I mean, the, the three of them that season, that initial season, uh, you know, were uh, top heavy on the on the stats in terms of scoring and yep. and assists and all that stuff. What do you think happened between that first season and the second season for things to kind of shift into gear and truly? you know, meld and, and go to that next level. Well, I think the addition of, um, of Willie Lindstrom certainly helped. And I think the fact that you're not going to have a team, like you had a bunch, like everyone else on the team was Canadian. So you had a bunch of guys from Saskatchewan or rural Ontario and who had been, who had been taught to play like the old tabletop hockey game that everyone got for Christmas back in the, 50s, 60s, and 70s. You went up and down your wing, and the center stayed in the middle. And so you couldn't, you couldn't, uh, all that, you couldn't rewire everybody on the team to be like the Swedes were in one season, I don't think. And then, but, but the time season two rolled around, people got it. There wasn't the same kind of animosity when the, when the Europeans arrived. And, um, and then, and, and they gelled. And it, and it, it was a markedly different team in, uh, 75, 76. They, they, um, uh, those, the last three years of the hotline, uh, they, they won two Africa cups and the third one, they, they lost in game seven against Quebec. And that was because, well, sorry, they attributed to the fact that they went to play the Vestia tournament in, uh, in Europe and had played something obscene, like 115 games or something that year. And it played more than anybody else. And they just ran out of gas, but, uh, but and Quebec to their credit had, had great teams also. And 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 use the the possession model much like the Jets did and the Montreal Canadiens. So yeah, the second year they 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 all got better and they were more comfortable. Like, like let's don't forget that like the first year that the Jets uh, of the of the Europeans arriving, you had in you had four corners of the locker room. You had the Swedes in one corner, you had the Finns in another, you had the Canadians in another, and they you had the French in another. And You'd have you'd hear four languages, and so Hall came in one day and said, "Listen, we're talking, we're speaking one language in here. We're, we're speaking, we're speaking English because that's the one we all know, or that the other ones we're learning. And we're going to play, and our language is going to be the language of hockey, I guess, right? And so then, then they all they put aside all of their all of the petty differences and 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 really gelled as a team. Describe, and now obviously this is a little bit through the lens of your childhood too, I believe, but." Um... Describe to me those those uh, those four years because um, I, even I, as a an occasional hockey fan growing up in northern New Jersey, where we had two going on three NHL franchises, even I noticed Winnipeg in the small agate of this thing called the World Hockey Association, and even I knew these three guys' names, uh, and occasionally heard the term hotline, even though there was no WHA franchise within spitting distance of where I lived. Um, how are the fans locally handling it? And how, how did you think the WHA thought about, frankly, a team that was essentially uh, becoming essentially a juggernaut, uh, good, bad, and different? And and given the the shakiness of the WHA in those years, that must have also added to the uh, to the drama and the excitement. Well, don't forget there was also the New, New Jersey Knights of the WHA too. So the short lived. New Fair Jersey enough. Knights. The Jersey Knights, but they were down in South Jersey and they were maybe sort of playing against. I, yeah, I mean, possibly. Sure. OK, I'll give you that. They, okay. They're an asterisk in my mind, if you ask me, but that's OK. 
Well, I, I think that uh, the the criticism that the WHA got all the way through was that it was a subpar league. And in, in a lot of times uh, that was true. But but for every team like the Birmingham Bulls in the in the NHL, you had the Cleveland Barons in the NHL. And nobody in Cleveland was like nobody there was filling the net. And there was the Minnesota North Stars and California Golden Seals. So the NHL had its own share of um, of players who couldn't put the biscuit in the basket. But I think that uh, and 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 Bobby Hall was quite open about the fact that back in the mid seventies, after I think it was the seventy six year when they had won the the AFCO Cup, that he said the Stanley Cup is a challenge cup, and we would love to challenge the Montreal Canadiens for the for the Stanley Cup. And of course, I don't know how much of it would have been Hall was no uh, stranger to being a showman. Of course, how much of it was showmanship and how much of it was legitimate, no one will ever know. But of course, the Montreal Canadiens never responded. And, and why would they? They had only everything to lose and nothing to gain. But I think that the the time when and the, and the there were lots of interleague um, games between the NHL and WHA teams in the preseason. And the NH- the NHL they didn't uh, line up the Montreal Canadiens to play any WHA teams, but there were lots of other teams that played. And the WHA had a had a um, a significant advantage in those games in the preseason games. But it was when the touring teams from Europe came that I think that the the, um, the WHA teams really showed that they belonged. And no night more so than January fifth, nineteen seventy eight, exemplified that because. That was the night the, the Jets had just been in in uh, Tokyo and had played the Soviet national team uh, three times and lost in, in three pretty close games. And <clears throat> let's just remember that this is uh, 53 weeks after the New Year's Eve game between the Montreal Canadiens and the Soviet Red Army team. Now, there's a quick distinction to be made here, and that's that the Soviet national team was a half step above the, the Red Army team. It was made up primarily of Red Army players, but it also had a few players from Spartak and Dinamo. So the Soviet national team was essentially the best team in the world. And the, uh, the jets came out that night on January 5th and minus 3000 in Winnipeg. And uh, there were 10,000 people at the arena. But if you, if you talk to people uh, the next week or 10 years after that, there was 50,000. And um, the, the, the Soviets didn't start, uh, um, Trechak in net, uh, and the name of the backup goalie escapes me right now. But, um, but the Jets went up, and then they put Trechak in, and they um, and the hotline ended up scoring five goals against the Mikhailov line uh, with Harlamov and Petrov, and um, and those two lines went head to head for most of the night, and then. Uh, Viktor Tikhonov, the the Soviet coach, pulled his line off off from playing against the hotline because they were being dominated. And Ulf Anders and Bobby were plus five, and the three top uh, Soviets were minus five. And uh, for for a five three win, and that was the the Jets were the first club team in either league to beat the Soviet national team. And that was that was yes, it was just an exhibition game, but. Anders Hedberg got up in the dressing room afterwards and he said uh, to his teammates, uh, just, he, he said, you guys need to know how big a deal that game was, especially for the Swedes, because they had been losing to the Soviets for years. Beating the Soviet national team was a very big deal. 
And the Winnipeg Jets of 78, 79 did it first. Well, sure. And the shadows of of the just the gargantuan, you know, summit series is of of prior prior years in that decade, too. Obviously, you know, different circumstances and and all kinds of it. But, you know, the, the, some of the shenanigans that you describe with the, with the Russians uh, or the Soviets at the time. Right. Where. Uh, yeah. I mean, they, they took it far more seriously. And it was a bigger deal than I think uh, most people even today recognize. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it was, um, and the there was a bit of a mystique about the Soviets because uh, we were still getting to know them a little bit. We'd obviously seen them with the Summit Series in 72, and you got to learn a few of the names like Harlamov and, and Tretjak. And uh, and then a little bit more with the 74 Series. It wasn't quite, it didn't get quite as much attention in, in North America, probably because it was WHA players and probably because they lost. And, um, and I guess... Um, North Americans got a bigger taste of it in 1980 when the uh, when the U.S. Olympic team uh, beat the uh, the USSR USSR juggernaut uh, at Lake at Lake Placid. But uh, yeah, it was it was a different way of playing hockey, right? The way the Soviets played, they uh, everything was a, they were all, they were all five man units, and they didn't really believe in pulling the goalie. Like when when they were playing the Jets in that five three loss, they were down four three and didn't pull the goalie. They were just uh, either confident or cocky enough that they could come back and score, and Hall instead went down and scored on on Tretjak, uh, his third goal of the game. So, but it, it was also let's not forget too that was a, that was a different era. It was a, the Cold War, and it was our system versus their system, and so you didn't want to lose to the commies, right? Okie dokie, what is this? Oh, hey, it's DraftKings Sportsbook. Hey, we're back with another week of football, and DraftKings Sportsbook is keeping us in on the NFL action with great offers every single game day. New customers can bet $5 and get $200 instantly in bonus bets. Throw five down on any of this week's epic matches and walk away an instant winner. Hey, and you know, DraftKings Sportsbook isn't stopping there. All customers can take advantage of two new offers every game day this September. Football is more fun when you're in on the action. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and sign up with code GOODSEATS. New customers can bet just $5 to get 200 instantly in bonus bets only on DraftKings Sportsbook an official sports betting partner of the NFL. And again, using that code, good seats. DraftKings Sportsbook, the crown is yours. <sighs> Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling by calling 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort, Kansas, 21 plus of age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. See dkng.co slash football for eligibility terms and responsible gaming resources. Bonus bets expire seven days after issuance. Eligibility and deposit restrictions apply. <sighs> now, back to our conversation.
So we've had Howard Baldwin here on the show a couple of times, right? And I think everybody's got. What's been on, right? What, well, on. yeah, and I well, I guess I think everybody's got a different sort of interpretation of that last year in the WHA and what was going on behind the scenes to affect some kind of long rumored, right? Many seasons that there was discussions and hints and wafts of this and that. Um, but I, I, I guess I can't imagine in retrospect, the team that got uh, perhaps the, the rawest end of the deal in that don't call it a merger, don't call it an absorption, call it whatever you want. Then the Winnipeg Jets. Um, do you want to kind of explain to our audience for those who are kind of unaware about sort of just how high and um, off the charts successful the Jets were in that last WHA season? And frankly, what they had to transition to the following season and as their first one in the NHL, because it seems like in some respect, almost a Pyrrhic victory in that regard. Well, okay. There was certainly a gigantic shift for the, the Winnipeg franchise to go into the NHL, but it was a nearly as seismic a change after the 77, 78 season, because that's after that season, Ulf and Anders were signed by the New York Rangers as essentially the first two unrestricted free agents in NHL history. Bobby Hull only had a huge deal, by the way, living in New York at that time. A yeah. huge deal. These guys were newly minted stars when people didn't even know. I mean, most people kind of knew their names already and they knew what they were getting, but obviously they went to another level when they were in New York. Well, and they signed contracts for $600,000 US, which is unheard of at the time. So, and, and Bobby Hull retired four games into the 78 79 season. So the hotline, which had been the marquee line in Winnipeg for four years, was gone. And so a, a couple other players had also left. Uh, Danny Lebrotten had left and Tommy Bergman was gone. And so you've got to replace several hundred points with the hotline. 450-odd points, whatever it was. And so <laughs> I'm not sure they were to say lucky is the right word, but the Houston Arrows were folding and Michael Gabadi and Barry Schenkel were told to get on a plane and get down there and see what they could pull off with that, with the players from that team. And so they went down there and they picked up, I think, I believe it was seven players, including Morris Lukowicz and Scott Campbell and Rich Preston and Terry Ruskowski and John Gray. And, um, and, and those guys were brought in to, fill the gap left by by the hotline and a couple other Swedes. And so that wasn't as uh, that that was a big change also, right? You had you had this team that had been playing a possession game with all these skilled players. And Terry Wiskowski would be the first one to tell you that he wasn't a skilled player. He was a grit player and he was gonna go through you if he had to and he'd fight you if he had to, but he's gonna get a lot of points. And so they went so the transition was you had to you had to bring in seven of these guys. Um, Paul Trebenchi was another one of the ones, by the way, and the arrows and the jets hated each other. And then you had to meld these two factions together. Well, that, that didn't work for the first part of the season. And that a lot of people believe that's what cost Larry Hillman his job when they brought in Tom McVie. And so, and then, um, but once Tom McVie arrived and they brought in Gary, the ax Smith in goal and that team caught fire and they, uh, they swept, Quebec in the first round of the playoffs and Edmonton had been the first place team in the league by a long shot. 
little 17 year old kid named Wayne Gretzky was, was tearing it up there. And the Jets beat the Oilers 4-2 in the, in the last Africa cup final to win a highly improbable third championship. And then when the, uh, when the, uh, the takeover happened, then the, then it was, it was even worse because the Jets were only allowed to protect two players and a couple goalies. And so they ended up keeping uh, Scott Campbell and Morris Lukowicz and Marcus Matson and a host of other players like Terry Ruskowski and Rich Preston and Kim Claxon were scooped up by their teams. And the Jets got to uh, pick over the dregs of, of those other teams. And it's a far different dis- um, dispersal of players today like in modern day expansion teams. Cause as we all know, the, the uh, Seattle Kraken and the, and the Vegas Golden Knights got to get some pretty good players. Well, there was, there were effectively no, no good players left for the WHA to, uh, teams to pick up because if the NHL, why would the NHL want a WHA team to do well? They've been, they've been complaining about the league for, for seven years and they weren't going to do them any favors. And, this was the chance for the WHA teams to stay in business and and continue and to finally hopefully make some money. And but that was a um, that first year NHL team somehow won twenty games, and uh, I guess it helped that their the league had been a little bit diluted because of the adding of the four teams. So the Jets got to play uh, Hartford and, and Quebec also, but it was the, it was the second year in the NHL where where Winnipeggers. I think I th- Tom McVie told me that he said after the last 79 uh, Africa Cup championship and the, and they're going into the NHL and he would see fans at the grocery store or at a softball game. They'd be like, um, it's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. And he would say, no, like they, they're taking all our players. Oh, it's going to be awesome. And then after 10 games, then the the mood in the grocery stores and around town changed because people realized that the the previous five years of, of glory days that we'd had in Winnipeg were, were gone and had evaporated uh, you know, completely. But that second season was trying for even the most hardy of, of Jets fans. They got in a rut that that uh, they almost didn't get out of. And it's it seems crazy now to, to, to throw this number out there. But and, and, and you would this this is a record that will never, ever be broken. The Jets were. Um, were winless in 30 consecutive games. They went from October, uh, sometime in October until December 23rd without winning a game. They tied a few in there, but there were a lot of blowout losses. There were also a couple of times where the Jets were up by two goals late in the game and their opponents scored not one, but two goals with the goalie pulled. And they kept pulling defeat out of the jaws of victory on a very regular basis. And you had Jets fans wearing paper bags over their heads to games. And it was, you, you, uh, you would, you would walk by a parked car downtown. You'd see two Jets tickets on it and you'd walk by an hour later and there'd be four Jets tickets on it. So people didn't want to go to the games and why would you want to go if they're getting, getting smoked all the time. But then in this one game, ABC set up a news crew or a sports crew to, to cover this game. The Jets were playing the Colorado Rockies and they were going to, they were going to lose or not win for their 31st consecutive game. And somehow the Rockies, who were the second worst team in the league, um, Willie Lindstrom scored a goal with uh, a couple minutes to go. And he said that uh, he'd, he'd never heard the arena so loud. And Willie had won. Willie went on to win a couple of, of uh, Stanley cups. And he said that 
the 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 um the deafening roar in that game was similar to what he heard in Edmonton when they were winning Stanley Cups with the Oilers. Yeah, I mean the the Jets only won nine games that season. To put it in perspective, um, the next best team that season, eighty eighty one, were the the Red Wings. Then they had they had ten more wins that nineteen, and they finished last in in the yeah. North Division, the Prince of Wales. But um, I, I I guess the question is, just two years after that, again, don't call it a merger, whatever. Mm-hmm. Why were the Jets fourth of the four? I mean, and by a wide margin that season, was it just? an extraordinary set of circumstances or were they hobbled more than the others when the big league merge came? Well, they were hobbled more than the others because they had more talent to be picked over for starters. And uh, but why, then also, I guess the question is why, why were they able to retain some of that at least? I mean, cause I, I mean, I, I get Hedberg and, and, and Nielsen were, were gone. I, I, you wonder, I, I, you probably know better than I do, but it almost seems like perhaps it was maybe trying to get some, some value for them before the, the, the WHA ship sank. Yeah. Well, I, I think part of it is that, um, Barry Shankaro and Michael Gabadi were brand new as owners. So they didn't like, like they were, Gabadi was a businessman and Shankaro was a lawyer. So they weren't hockey team owners, and that's why they brought in John Ferguson late in the 78-79 season. But the the Edmonton Oilers, for example, signed Wayne Gretzky to a, like, I think he had a personal services contract. So he didn't count among the two players, two skaters that they, that they got to protect. And Gabadi told me that that when when the Jets had a chance to sign Gretzky in, in the last WHA season, and Rudy Pillis, the Jets GM at the time, said he didn't think that Garrett Gretzky would be able to handle the 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 rough and tumble uh, league, or you know when things got tighter and, and in the playoffs. And Gabadi said his biggest regret was not signing Gretzky to a personal services contract. So there were a, a few little loopholes like that that the Jets could have exploited. Like they could have kept like Terry Roskowski. He wanted to stay here. He was uh, Tom McVie told me how hard it was for him to to tell Roskowski that they weren't keeping him. And Roskowski said Roskowski was. Uh, he was the team leader. He was the assistant captain. He'd had a bad shoulder injury in the final. He didn't play in game five. And uh, before game six, he was the, the trainer, Bill Bozak, worked on him through the night. And Roskowski came out and could barely move his, his one shoulder, but played in game six. Heart of a lion. I think he had four assists. And then at the start of the third period, Tom McVie said, you can sit down. Your, uh, your night is done. And they could have signed a guy like that, and he would have stayed. And, uh, but I guess it, it could have been a, a bit of inexperience or not really knowing some of the, the loopholes and, and, and the ropes and the Jets just didn't do it. And, and, uh, and you, you weren't gonna, there were no diamonds in the rough with the, what was available with the expansion draft, because it was players like Hilliard Graves and guys who were third and fourth liners on already bad teams. And they were just going to, so the, the Jets had a second line and three fourth lines for the for the first couple of years. However, a silver lining, maybe not uh, completely visible uh, during those two admittedly hor- horrific seasons, especially that second one. Um, draft picks and uh, restocking, and uh, not to pick one name out of a hat, but one of the one of the folks that you feature pretty heavily in. Uh, your broken ribs and popcorn book, your your second book of the 
don't call it a trilogy the the du- the duopoly or if you will or the whatever the 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 twin uh, 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 towers of your uh, of your writings here is uh, is uh, Dale Haverchuk and and um even at the end of the uh, of the book there's um somebody uh, uh, paying respects to uh to Dale uh given that he just passed away fairly recently um am i putting too much on his shoulders in terms of his importance to this turnaround after that second NHL season. Absolutely not. And, and just for for context here, the, the picture at the end of the book of um, is uh, Dancing Gabe Langlois, who is better known as Dancing Gabe, and who is kind of the Jets' number one uh, fan in all sports. And he goes to all the games. And the picture is of, of him outside the MTS Center. Um, saluting uh the the howardchuck banner but dale howardchuck was an elite player and he didn't get the attention that wayne gretzky got in edmonton because he was uh, they were winning all those stanley cups uh he didn't if he had played in a market like toronto or montreal or new york dale howardchuck would have been on on billboards and cereal boxes and and everywhere but as it was he he married a, a manitoba girl and and kept a much lower profile but you talk to other players in the league, and they'll say that Howard Chuck was as dangerous as anybody, and um, especially when it comes to the '87 Canada Cup. Don't forget that he he wasn't supposed to make that team, and he never even got invited to the '84 tryouts, which Glenn Sather was coaching. So maybe he didn't want his biggest one of his biggest rivals to get a, a sniff of what the, what made the Oilers tick, but. Uh, Howard Chuck, not only did he play himself onto that team, but as as the 87 Canada Cup wore on, Howard Chuck became uh, a bigger cog in the wheel there. And of course, he's the one that wins the faceoff that led to one of the greatest goals in Canadian history. And he also had the greatest hook of all time when he when he tugged uh, Bikov, who went down in a in a in a glorious 360, a few feet behind Mar- uh, Mario Lemieux. Um, and, and Howard Chuck was the player of the game in that all important third game. So he was, uh, he was the straw that stirred the drink in Winnipeg. And, and, um, Paul McLean was once, uh, negotiating with, with, uh, with John Ferguson over a new contract and, and he had just had a good year and he said, listen, I scored 40 goals last year. And he said, yeah, with Dale Howard Chuck, he probably should have 50 or 60. So. Howard Chuck was, um, he was a uh, uh, one-of-a-kind player. He w- wasn't the fastest guy around, but he had a great shot. He had great instincts, and he, and he, was, a, he, was, a, he was a great leader. And he uh, a lot of the Jets looked up to him. And, and let's not forget that when the Jets went into the playoffs, so the broken ribs part, that's Howard Chuck. So when the Jets went into the playoffs in, in 85, they were the hottest team in the league. They had been undefeated in they're undefeated in 13 games including two wins in Edmonton um over the Oilers and then they won the first two games in the first round in the best of five against the Flames so they were undefeated in 15 games nobody else was even close to that kind of a streak and then that's when Jamie McCowan went down in Winnipeg history uh as public enemy number one forever when he broke Howard Chuck's ribs with a cross check and those cross checks had happened a couple hundred times that game so far, but Howard Chuck jumped. McCowan happened to catch him, 
between his pants and his shoulder blades, uh, shoulder pads, and cracked a couple of ribs. And then uh, the Jets managed to win game four and knock out the Flames, but you weren't going to be able to take on um, one of the greatest teams in, in NHL history in the in the Oilers without your number one player in Dale Howardchuk. And everyone was able to step up to win, game, to win the fourth game in Calgary, but it was a lot to ask a lot of guys to step up that much to replace the best player on your team. And so that was an impossible task. And, and, um, and if you, uh, the Oilers I talked to said they knew that as soon as Howard Chuck was out of the Jets lineup, that they weren't taking the Jets lightly, but it was going to be a significantly different series without him in the lineup. All right. Speaking of the Oilers, it's, it's uh, important to uh, mention this thematic as well, because with the realignment and the movements of certain franchises and how the NHL was structured in the early part of the decade. And then by the middle part of the decade, it was pretty much ensconced. The Oilers were not just only, <clears throat> you know, the, the main rivals of, of the jets. You could throw in the Calgary flames once they moved up there from, from Atlanta as well. But I, it, th- there was no greater nemesis come playoff time than the Oilers. And it wasn't like they could do much about it because the way the league and the playoff setup was structured, it was really the, it was kind of the two of them had to fight it out to really go to the next level. And the Oilers generally seemed to have the Jets number um, and kind of preventing it on an ongoing basis. Right. Yeah. Saying that they had the Jets number is a little bit of an understatement. I think that the, um, through a number of playoff series, the Oilers had won 16 consecutive playoff games. So they swept the Jets a number of times. And it was, and it wasn't like they were sweeping, they, they weren't beating the Jets 7 1. It was a lot of 3 2 and 4 2 games. But the Oilers had, yes, they had the great players of Gretzky and, and Messier and Anderson and Curry and, um, and Lowe. But if you talk to most of the Jets on that team, you could shut down Gretzky sometimes. You could you could, might be able to get Messi off his game. But when it came down to the third period, you weren't getting a puck past Grant Fuhrer. And, and Paul McLean told me that he still wakes up in the middle of the night sometimes uh, having flashbacks to to what he thought were open nets and Fuhrer flashing a glove and, and stealing a puck away uh, or a goal away from him. So... The goal in in the uh, in the old Smythe division was you wanted to come first because, um, it, by coming first, the Oilers let the Flames and the Jets beat the tar out of each other for for uh, however long the series would go, and then you got to play Vancouver or LA and ideally sail through that. Then you got you got to play a beat up team in the second round, and so like there was one the eight forty five season when Edmonton, Winnipeg, and Calgary were the top three of the top five teams in the league. And by the end of the second round, two of them were gone. So when you finished first in the split division, you had a decided advantage. And every time the Oilers went on to win the Stanley Cup, they they went through Winnipeg. And um, the Jets, it didn't go unnoticed by the Jets. And because they, they they obviously gave them some, some good battles, particularly in 1990 when the Jets were up 3-1. That was post-Gretzky and post-Fuhrer. But that's after game four when Dave Ellett had scored in double overtime to send the Jets up 3-1. And... Back then, three-one leads. No one lost those series. Like, there have only been four or five in NHL history that had been lost. And so, Jets fans thought, "Well, this is finally it. We were finally beating the the hated Oilers." 
And Edmonton won Game Five, and the Jets were down three nothing in Game Six. Came back to tie it in three uh, to game tie it Game Six at three all, and were pressing uh, late in uh, in Game Six. And the ice is tilted, and and the crowd's going bananas. Then there's a close play at uh, at the Oilers blue line, and one of the Jets fans didn't like it. And he threw. Now the or- original story was that it was a box popper, and it might have been it might have been peanuts. So I don't. <laughs> So there might be, the title may not be totally accurate, but anyway, back then they didn't have ice cleaning crews. So they had to get a janitor uh, in his sneakers to kind of be, have his arms held on both sides. And, and he had to come out and sweep up the, the popcorn slash peanuts. And that took five minutes. And by the time that was done, the air had come out of the building. Uh, the Oilers coaches were able to call the team over. They were able to calm everybody down. The Jets momentum had, had slowed and a couple minutes after that, Yari Curry came down and 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 shot one past Bob Essence's glove, and a, a shot to this day that Essence still thinks he he uh, he thought he had it, and he he still thinks he should have had it. And then uh, Game Seven was a formality, but uh, and then they went on to win another Stanley Cup, and so it's um, yeah, it was just kind of the the Jets' lot in life was that they were going to be the um, the the foil to one of the greatest dynasties in hockey history. So I, well, I think I hear in there as you're saying that there's a dynasty there that, you know, it's kind of like, well, what are you going to do? We, you know, that was just the moments in time. Um, but frankly, it also does sound like the, you know, the NHL, again, back in the day, right, you know, uh, could have benefited perhaps from some seeding, right, to kind of maybe yeah. mix up the playoff roster a little bit and kind of mix it up. But, you know, I, rivalries and the NHL, I mean, Certainly, until in and around that time, I mean, the NHL. I mean, look, they, they the NHL didn't expand past six franchises until 1967, right? So, it, you could argue that there's still a lot of sort of heritage and history that kind of, I don't know, uh, got in the way or gets in the way, and and they weren't doing very well with keeping expansion franchises in their original locations either, and that didn't help them help matters either when it came to uh, conferences and, and seatings and stuff. Yep. Uh, sure, but I still think that if you uh, if you go back and talk to a lot of these guys back then, the difference was the Jets had good goaltending. They had Doug Sotard and Brian Hayward and Bob Essenza, but they didn't have great goaltending. And so the Oilers had Grant Fuhr, and his backup was Andy Moog. Well, Andy Moog would be the starter on 95% of the teams throughout the rest of the league, and then they got Bill Ranford. And so the Jets just, like, they could match them uh, on the forward line sometimes. They could match them on D, but when it came down to it, they could they, they didn't have the goaltending for it. And the part that uh, that is um, excruciating for a lot of Jets fans is that there was a trade in 84-85 uh, where the Jets uh, picked up, uh, I think it was Robert Picard from Montreal. And they sent a draft pick, a third round draft pick to Montreal. And uh, the Canadians used that draft pick to draft Patrick Roy. So, like, what is say right? That, right? It's, right. it's one of those things where, oh my God, like, as, as nice, as serviceable, as serviceable a player as Picard was, um, he was no Patrick Roy. And to think that there was a chance that, who knows what what might have happened if the what, how if the Jets didn't have that pick? You never know. But but to think that Patrick Roy 
slipped through our fingers seven or eight years after Wayne Gretzky slipped through our fingers. That's uh, that's a tough one to swallow. Well, all right, that sort of leads me into the denouement, and I know that the two books don't really sort of get into into this part, but I certainly would like your opinion and your your sort of uh, understanding of this, right? I, even if if a Patrick Y had had arrived on the scene, I, it doesn't seem to me economically that the 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 original version of the NHL uh, stop of the of the uh, of the Jets was going to last too much longer, given the fact that they were by by the early 1990s, either the uh, smallest or second smallest market in the NHL and the difference in valuation between the U.S. and Canadian dollars just seems like economics was catching up with this franchise, despite what it seems to be uh, a pretty healthy, strong and vibrant fan support in Winnipeg. Yeah, let's not go overboard on the fan support. Like, uh... okay. People will think back and or will look back and, and say, "Oh, well, the, the the Jets were sold out every night, particularly in the in the last season, ninety five, ninety six. Well, they had eleven thousand and change for a lot of those games, and even in the Tim Solani rookie season, like there were a couple sellouts, but there's a lot of a lot of twelve, thirteen thousand seat games, and so uh, there are a few things at play here. So the, obviously, the Canadian dollar wasn't doing the Canadian teams any favors, so they were paying salaries in U.S. dollars, and so they were. The dollar was in the 65 cent range or whatever it was. So you're at a 35% discount uh, disadvantage right there. And um, and no collective bargaining agreement. So there's no salary cap. So the New York Rangers could sign whoever they wanted, you know, like Hedberg and Nilsson. And, um, and, uh, and they could just, they could run it up. And the Jets had a, antiquated arena it was built in the 50s and even when like they were supposed to the idea was they were supposed to build a new arena before they made it into the nhl the first time but barry shankro told me that one of his advisors before they got in was izzy asper who was like a, a winnipeg and canadian media mogul and he said yeah tell them what tell them you're going to get a new arena tell them tell them what they need to hear then once you're in you can do whatever you want and that's what they did. So they 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 expanded the Winnipeg Arena from ten to fifteen thousand, but it was still one of the lousier arenas in 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 the NHL. There were some bad sight lines, and um, one one of the one of the ends went super high up. You had to walk up to like the row fifty or whatever it was, and um, and the Jets in so remember they had they had Tim Mussolini arrive in ninety two ninety three, and then he was followed shortly thereafter by Keith Kachuk and, and Alexei Zhamnov. So they had three marquee players. And but they couldn't afford them because they didn't have they didn't have the corporate corporate sponsorship. There aren't a lot of head offices in Winnipeg, and um, and they were they didn't have the, the the money in the coffers. So they decided to get rid of one of them, and and they chose. <laughs> history has shown that they chose the wrong one. <laughs> uh, they thought that because Tim Solani had had an Achilles injury a couple years beforehand, that he might be a little bit more brittle. And, uh, and not as long lasting as, as Jamnoff, who ended up being the, the, the least durable of the three. And Kachuk, they decided to build in a, in a Winnipeg, in a Canadian market, they decided to build their team around an American player. And that's, that was, that wasn't a, a common thing, uh, in the NHL back then, especially, and Kachuk wasn't a super, he, he had his fans, but he had his detractors in Winnipeg also. And, uh, so when you and Solani was one of the most popular players 
in the league and they traded him at, at this point the team was already leaving but they were having to make decisions all the way through that showed that they were the, the have not in the league and and uh and when you had teams like the like the rangers and the big market teams spending whatever they wanted to and it's like if this was a european soccer uh division the the jets would have been bumped down well i i know uh a a minor league franchise came in pretty quickly thereafter. But let, let me ask you, I, I got two sort of major questions sort of as we cul-de-sac this. So, because we can go yeah. on and on about all the different scenarios and and and, and all this, uh, the, the changes and stuff. I, it's fascinating to me about how these things go down. But were you surprised, given all of your background with the original Jets, that Winnipeg was... <laughs> chosen if you will for relocation by a, another franchise in 2010 2011 for a renewed franchise and and that even and notwithstanding that to even adopt the, the name of the original franchise in the first place well there's a lot going on there so uh, first of all when especially the, given that, it's still a small market right by nhl modern day yeah. nhl standards sorry yeah, no we we the, the the jets play in the smallest uh building in the NHL. And that's not going to, I don't think that's going to change for the foreseeable future. And, but when the Mantua Moose, when uh, Mark Chipman and the team at True North Sports and Entertainment brought Mantua Moose in, formerly the Minnesota Moose, uh, in the fall of 96, it wasn't just, it was partly to have a team. You wanted to have a team here. And and Mark Chipman was, was part of the Save the Jets group that was trying to galvanize corporate support to, to keep the team and that also had kids breaking over their open their piggy banks at, at the rally. And, but Chippen also wanted to have, they had a long-term goal of getting back in the NHL. If, if the right circumstances were there and that included the dollar being markedly better and it also included having a salary cap. And so when uh, in the uh, early, I guess 2005, 2006, 2007 and around there, when a few of the of the teams were having trouble, including the uh, the the former Winnipeg Jets, the um, the the Coyotes, and the Thrashers were having trouble, so the the Jets decided, or sorry, the Moose decided that they were going to run their organization like an NHL organization. So they didn't. There was nothing bush league about it. They expanded the uh, so they, they had a they had the MTS sorry now called the Canada Life Center built it was the mts center for a long time and uh and so the, the mentor moose had a major league arena to play in Fifteen thousand people it held they didn't fill it but they, that was that was what the building they played in and so that the uh true north ultimately built a second uh tier to the press box and people were wondering what's going on how can they have a second tier in the press box for a minor league team but behind the scenes Chipman and the team there were in constant communication with with Gary Bevin and the NHL, and they had they were running uh, uh, along two tracks. One was for the Thrashers, one was for the for the Coyotes, and they very nearly landed the Coyotes if it weren't for a last minute deal to to keep the team there. And it's all obviously worked out so well since then in Arizona. Yeah, I mean the irony is is just dripping there. Right? It's amazing. Yeah. Yep, and then um, but. Th- they the the Thrashers had ownership that didn't want the team. They wanted to, to focus on their basketball team. They they weren't they were having trouble drawing flies, and um, 
And I guess without another place to go, that might not have happened. If it had been 10 years later, they might not have come back here. But at the time, the, the Jets were the number one possible destination. Chippen had a good relationship with uh, with Bettman. And don't forget that Jim Balsley, the former head of, of BlackBerry, uh, he had been trying uh, years earlier to buy the Coyotes. Uh, but he was spouting off at the mouth where, where he was going to take them. And you don't do that when you've got uh, an organization run by effectively a, a, a dictator-like organization run in, in the NHL. And Balsley was saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And they, and they said, not a chance. So he got pushed out pretty quickly. But Chippen played the game and he played it He played it uh, wonderfully. And and uh, so when the time came to for the uh, Atlanta Thrashers to relocate, the Jet, Winnipeg was the um, was the logical location. And Batman came here for the press conference, said all the right things, and um, and then and of course everyone lost their minds, and all the tickets sold out in uh, in a matter of minutes. And and it's been it's been a little bit more than a decade now, so it's the honeymoon is obviously over, and the Jets had to. Um, uh, they've they launched a campaign this summer to try and boost the corporate ticket uh, base, and so they're working on that right now. And so now we've now the Jets just kind of have the the normal NHL problems, I suppose. And the NHL certainly uh, is uniquely uh, suited for for problems because they they have their they they're very interested. They're always there's always something going on, and, and obviously Arizona certainly maybe prime among them. But all right, so let me ask this last question then. Uh, and I think you're you're very qualified uh, to answer it because with you know with um, with some level of certainty. So a lot of what we talk about on this show does revolve around, especially with teams that get relocated and moved around and stuff. What we sort of call retroactive continuity or retcon, right? Which is this oftentimes uh, selective amnesia when say like the Cleveland Browns leave and then come back magically as a new franchise, right? Obviously yep. the Jets are an example of that. Um, if you're a history buff or somebody who grew up with the first two, let's give them that, uh, versions of the Jets, mm -hmm. um, a, a lifetime fan, let's say, and you remember, you know, some of those, those times and you, you know, that certain numbers were retired and, and and you you were there during, uh, and were conscious of of you know the hotline and and you know the, those just gnawingly difficult to digest you know playoff losses to the Oilers. Where in your mind does that original history live? Is it with the Coyotes nose held, or is it maybe uh, something else held in this new thing called the Jets that? is only 11 or 12 years old itself and isn't really the original or, or do people just forget that and it just blends together? It's the history is in Winnipeg. So those, the Bobby Hall, Nelson, Andrews, Hedberg, Dale Howard, Chuck, Thomas team, they all played in Winnipeg. And so as, as Michael Gabotti, the former owner told me, he said, sort of, this might be chinkerel. He said, it's just a piece of paper in Phoenix that has the team there. It's just, it's, it's a, it's a document. Uh, it's an ownership it's an ownership document, but nobody in in Arizona has the memory of watching those players play. So that's all in Winnipeg. So I think there was a little bit of time there when people were like, 
do we mesh the histories here? Do we not? And now I think it's um, especially considering that the Jets have have embraced their the Winnipeg Jets history by retiring numbers like like the hotline number nine, number fifteen, number fourteen, Lars Eric Schoberg's number four, uh, and at McDonald's number fourteen also. And they have had nights to 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 celebrate the WHA and the early um and, and so there's a statue of Dale Howarchuk outside the Canada Life Center. So when uh, when a player with the current Jets will reach a milestone, whether it's goals, assists, or games played, or whatever it might be, um, they'll often be the 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 dual comparison. So they have now surpassed uh, Kovalchuk with the Atlanta Flashers and Anders Hedberg with the original Winnipeg Jets, or something like that. So, but for the most part, people the history in most people's minds is of those Winnipeg Jets teams. And I know that Dale Howardchuk's number is in the ring of honor in, in Arizona, but nobody knows who he is there. And, and uh, people will go and pose in front of the Howardchuk statue here and, and rub a skate for good luck. And so uh, that's a Winnipeg history. And I think that Winnipegers are pretty proud of that stuff, even though, even though it was a difficult history for a lot of it, um, we don't live here cause it's anything's been easy. And so um, it's it's a sort of a, it's the character builder sports wise that we all have with the rest of our lives with the cold and that sort of thing. And and people are proud of those players. And and when those guys come to town, um, I, I helped organize a reunion for the 77, 78 Jets a few years ago, the 40th anniversary of their last of their WHA AFCO Cup win. And we had 300 people paying 250 bucks a pop for the dinner um, standing in line like crazy to get pictures with all these guys, Bobby Olf and Anders. And um, like, uh, obviously not, they're not all here with us anymore. Right. We lost Bobby earlier this year, but um, those memories for, for a, a big chunk of Winnipeggers are uh, what they grew up with. And they, they pass that on and there's not as much that you can see on YouTube, but there's still some of it. And um, so I think uh, the Jets do a good job now of, of, of trying to bring the history forward and honor those players um, by having them at the, uh, at the Canada life center as much as possible. Anybody in the press box, bring up uh, anything of the past when the coyotes come to visit? Well, yeah, it's, it's the Jets versus the Jets. And so, so people do remember and people do have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder with respect to that. I, Cause oh, I, oh. I, I don't know that because I mean, I would imagine that there's a whole generation of fans who just, who just think Arizona is another franchise. They had no idea. No, no, we love, we love the Jets fans here. Love beating the the Coyotes and Shane Doan, who's the longtime captain of the, of the Coyotes played his first season in Winnipeg. And he was the last throwback to the, to the, to the, uh, the original NHL Jets. And when he retired, that was the, he was the last guy, I believe, on that team. No, he was he was the last guy on that team to still be with the team. And the the Jets had a good run there. Um, it, it wasn't until a year or two ago, like they'd had like a bunch of wins in a row against the Coyotes, and 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 Jets fans took a lot of uh, a lot of satisfaction in that. And especially now that the Coyotes, it's uh, it's it's laughable for for a lot of fans because the jets were criticized for years for playing in the smallest rink in the NHL 
And now, sorry, we should say that the Jets are in the second smallest room because the Coyotes are playing in a university arena that holds 5,000 people. Yeah, it's just, so just funny. It's, I mean, look, this, you know, this little show, right? That's the gift that keeps on giving. You know, we have sort of future episode watches because not that we're rooting for demises and, and, and foldings and, and relocations and stuff, but. You know, the, the, I said before, you know, the NHL and, and the Arizona franchise in particular have gone well out of their way to uh, put themselves in our top five to watch category. Yes. Let me ask it, you this last question. I promise last question. It's a dumb yeah. one, though, but but it's important, I guess, based on what I just asked you. Where do the Avco Cup championship banners reside in Winnipeg or are they in Phoenix as well or what? Uh, the banners are at the Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame. Ah, good answer, I guess. Yeah. And so, but maybe more importantly, uh, there are three Avco Cups. And so one of them is in Eastern Canada. I'm afraid if it's in Nova Scotia or, or New Brunswick. And I think that uh, it's in a museum there because uh, something like that the an executive with Avco, which was like an insurance company back in the seventies, uh, that he, that he was from there. And I think because the, the WHA was the first, um, league to have a championship trophy sponsored. And there's a second Avco cup in the, ironically enough, in the hockey hall of fame in Toronto. So after all those years of complaining about the WHA and everything's illegitimate and all this kind of stuff, the, there's an Avco cup. Um, down on uh, in downtown Toronto, but the uh, what people consider to be the 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 real or the main Afro Cup is at the Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame in Winnipeg, and that's the one that was that was presented to Lars Eric Schoberg at Center Ice at the Winnipeg Arena in May of '79, after the Jets had beaten the uh, the, the Oilers seven three in Game Six. And uh, Schoberg got to skate around the rink with that one. And that one uh, is the one that is currently in Winnipeg and, and uh, it's on display. And, and I've, um, I've, I've done a few stories on it over the years. And I know that the one rule is that they have there is that uh, you can't touch it unless you want it, you can't touch it. And so they they make a very big deal about that. But when the, when the, when the veterans come here who have won it, they get to, hold it and carry it around like it was like it's a, like it's a toy. So it is got, there's a lot of tradition with the Africa cup. It means a lot to those players. Um, and, uh, and it, and it means a lot to Winnipeg hockey fans to be able to go and see that in the Manitoba sports hall of fame. And the coyotes didn't have those or that remembrances before and, or certainly probably not after Winnipeg got their franchise back. I don't think so. They had a few little things to kind of give lip service to, to the history of the team. Um, they, uh, like I said, they they retired Howard Chuck's number. Howard Chuck got to make a speech uh, before a, a Coyotes home game, and nobody knew who he was. So the the Coyotes aren't that big on the history side of things with with Winnipeg, and and uh, that's just the way it is, and and uh, that's fine by everybody here in Winnipeg, I think. All right. Our thanks to Jeff. Uh, the books uh, are available for purchase and you should get because they really fill in with great detail and uh, intrigue. Uh, the various uh, missing pieces to the story of the original WHA version of the 
Winnipeg Jets. That book uh, is called The Hotline, how the legendary trio of Hull, Hedberg, and Nielsen transformed hockey and led the Winnipeg Jets to greatness. Avco Cups and all, I threw that part in there. Uh, and uh, the um, best way to get that book is going to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com, searching up this episode number 318 and clicking on the link and buying it that way. Thank you very much. While you're there, how about purchasing the second book you should add to your library? That one is called Broken Ribs and Popcorn. How the Winnipeg Jets, again, the NHL version of such, became the best team in the NHL's most offensive era not to win the Stanley Cup. And that tome uh, from 2020 is uh, available through our links as well. But you can also, for both of these books, go to the publisher's website. It's it's, uh, published by our friends at Great Plains Press. And their website is greatplains, P-L-A-I-N-S, press.ca. And you can buy the books that way as well. And while you're there, uh, I believe you could do a pre-order. And you certainly could do that online at, at Amazon. Uh, I know the pre-order is available now on Amazon for Jeff's uh, forthcoming book. I'm not sure exactly when it's coming out. Amazon says it's coming out in early October. I'm not quite sure that's true. Uh, but the book, uh, the anticipated book with um, the uh, biography and the story of Morris uh, Lukovic. I think it's Lukovic. Uh, sorry, I, <laughs> I didn't grow up as a Jets fan, so I'm sorry I didn't know that. Uh, obviously, a, 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 a player... Uh, and a confidant of Gordie Howe and Bobby Hull and was part of the Winnipeg Jets, both in the WHA and the original NHL versions. Uh, a, a, a fascinating story of play and life and recovery and all that kind of stuff. The heaven and hell of playing in the NHL is the title of that book. And again, you can pre-order it, go through our links, all that kind of stuff, or go to greatplainspress.ca. Uh, uh, you can also follow Jeff on uh, Twitter slash X slash whatever it is at Jeff Kerbison. I'll spell it for you. It's G-E-O-F-F. Kerbison is K-I-R-B-Y-S-O-N. That's at Jeff Kerbison on Twitter slash X slash whatever. While you're there, you can follow us on Twitter at Good Seats Still. You can also find us on other socials such as uh, I don't know. Where else? How about uh, Instagram? Sure. Good Seats Still Available is the hang or the tag there. Uh, you can also find us on threads at the same uh, tag there at Good Seats Still Available. You also find us on Facebook at Good Seats Still Available. And uh, what else? You can send us email. Sure. Why not? Hello at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. And, uh, of course, our website, GoodSeatsAvailable.com. You can check us out for all the past episodes and stuff. Tell your friends. Link to it. Uh, call it out on social media and stuff. Hey, and by the way, when you uh, subscribe or follow us in your podcast feeds, please rank, uh, rate, review, preferably with five stars or some really good, uh, uh, and if not necessarily accurate, but uh, uh, nice uh, thoughts and, and uh uh, attaboys we appreciate that that helps our algorithm other people like you and maybe not even like you uh find the show and add it to their feeds and all that kind of stuff and they'll tell two friends and so on and so on we appreciate that that is absolutely a very helpful thing that you can do and uh speaking of helpful uh as always our friend jerry Payne, jerry Payne audio excellence always there for us in a pinch uh, and uh, we appreciate, of course, all of the knob twiddling that Jerry does for us each week. And this week is no exception. Thank you for listening next week. More fun and frivolity. Take care and watch your feeds. And we appreciate your listenership. Bye bye. Bye.